0: Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and uh, hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries along the way. Now it's uh, some years since uh, I took a hammer and and broke up some pieces of broken pot to make crocks to fit uh, for drainage in the bottom of big terracotta pots. I mean, once the uh, Californian mixes of compost and then the all pea compost came in, of course we didn't need a crock over the bottom of the pot. It was only before then, when we were using John Innes and it had a fair bit of loam in it, there was a chance that uh, a bit of clay could sit into that bottom hole on the big flower pots and uh, just block it and uh, make it waterlogged. And then, of course, once the uh, soilless composites came in, uh, in practice, uh, um, plants grew better without the crocks. But uh, just uh, lately, now we're moving to a lot of peat-free composts, there's a lot more soil being brought back in uh, with uh, a number of the mixes. And if you have got a big clay pot with um, just one large hole in the base, then it's worth getting a bit of... uh, Old flower pot, preferably a bit that's just got a bit of a curve to it. Just one piece broken up and then slipped across the uh, drainage hole just so the clay can't go in and block it up. Well, it looks as if the weather is at last on the change a bit and getting a little warmer. And with a bit of luck, the bank holiday will be very comfortable has been helpful over the last few days to have the temperatures a bit warmer and certainly the rain, quite heavy rain, has helped. But with some of the large flowered pansies that we've got to, in that really big trial, the wind and rain, and uh, on Monday, quite a rough hailstorm, has damaged some of the petals. And so uh, we need to do a bit more deadheading, a little bit more weeding, and then with warm weather, just three days, I would think, It's going to be absolutely spectacular at Hyde Hall. I was there today tying sweet peas. We were just growing a few cordon style. Uh, Flower buds are developing quite nicely. Stems about nine inches long on those uh, growing outside. Uh, And there were two ladies sitting on a bench, well, for quite a long time. I didn't really take that much notice of them. But uh, when they got up uh, and I heard their footfall on the gravel as they came uh, towards the exit uh, one of them said to me thank you and I said uh, thank you for what and they said well we were quite uh, low and depressed when we came to the gardens today and sitting in all this pansy colour has given us such a lift and we're going home happy now what more could a gardener want
1: there is no better of power than forms of the shrubby
0: our thanks for this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants Limited, Pershaw, Worcestershire. What's new? Well, I hear the Royal Horticultural Society, in their wisdom, have banned specialist fuchsia nurseries from exhibiting at their summer garden shows at places like uh, Wisley and Harlow carb, because of fuchsia gall mite pest. It's very difficult to understand why they should eliminate fuchsias. I mean, they're still selling them on the garden centre, and uh, there are cultural, insecticidal, and biological means to control fuchsia gall mite. The uh, cultural approach, if you you see some of the leaves being bloated and twisted you just cut the plant to the ground take everything away don't leave a leaf or any kind of shoot and it needs to be uh, burnt or you know certainly uh, destroyed well away from any other fuchsia plant and there are systemic insecticides you can use to control it and more recently a biological control you know you just release an insect that eats the gall mite i mean if they're going to ban Fuchsias because of gormite, Where does it end? I mean, what happens with the uh, Agapanthus scormite or Hamericalis scormite or even black currant big bud? I mean, are all those things going to be banned too? I don't understand why that decision is made. Well, or who made it? In spite of pretty grim weather, downpours, gale force wind, and even hail, the interest in gardening continues to grow. The top plant sellers at present are zonal geraniums, petunias, begonias, tomatoes, of course, osteospermum, fuchsias, and impatiens. Busy Lizzie. Ten years ago, we were selling a uh, hundred million Busy Lizzie's each year. Boy, that's a lot of trail holes, isn't it? And then, of course, downy mildew disease came in and pretty well wiped out Busy Lizzie's as a popular summer bedding plant. And then, two years ago, new resistant cultivars were introduced, one called Beacon and the other Imara, and the sales of uh, Busy Lizzy plants are returning, although it's taking time, currently a quarter of what they were ten years ago. Uh, what about timely tips? Well, the heavy rain has encouraged a slug and snail invasion I thought my veg plot was uh, pretty clear of uh, slugs especially but if I put uh, a plant or two in black plastic pots on the dug soil the chances are the next morning there'll be a slug or two underneath. Uh, What I'm doing is to just sprinkle a very few slug pellets, just two or three, under the pot because um, slugs and snails of course go in the dark during the daytime. And under the pot, the pellets are protected from rain and so they last a little bit longer. And of course, they're out of sight and reach of other creatures. So uh, it makes uh, the pellets last longer and they're much more effective if you just put them under a tile or under a black plastic pot. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith. Um, And one of the uh, reasons I'm very keen to chat to her is that she's the author of a book called The Well-Gardened Mind, Rediscovering Nature in the Modern World. And I think a lot of us in uh, recent months have come across people who've benefited from uh, gardening to uh, reduce stress. And uh, Sue, with this book, looks to me to be well ahead of the field. Uh, Sue, welcome to the podcast and may I congratulate you on a really excellent book.
1: Thank you very much, Peter, and I'm so delighted to be with you today. Now,
0: I'm not quite sure where to start. Could you explain why you wanted to write the book?
1: Well, there are actually several strands to that. I think, you know, one aspect was... About my own experiences through gardening, because I started my gardening life as a bit of a gardening sceptic, as I put it. I, I married in my mid-twenties uh, Tom Stewart-Smith, the, the garden designer, and, and we had this extraordinary opportunity of, of moving to Hertfordshire uh, on his family plot and, and creating a garden in, in a field around the barn that we lived in. So, so for me, at the very beginning of, you know, I was determined to like gardening and love gardening because Tom was such a passionate gardener and I loved him. But, um, but actually, I did, I did see it. I have to confess, a bit like outdoor housework. You know, I preferred being outside, but I didn't sort of see, see the intrinsic sort of uh, value of it. Um, certainly not on a personal level. Uh, and that journey of, of beginning to make a space around us, and then me. You know, after about four or five years of living here, beginning to grow some of our own food and growing herbs and things that I could cook with, really did hook me into gardening. And, and as my career became more, I think, you know, I became more senior as a psychiatrist and, you know, therefore taking more responsibility, carrying more work stress, I certainly realised that if I wasn't gardening at least part of the weekend, that I was feeling the sort of effects of that. I was missing it. So that, that was my own experience um, that I wanted to draw on. But the other aspect in the background was my grandfather's story that I'd grown up with. So, so there, sort of, there, there were different inspirations uh, that contributed to the book.
0: Well, so, before we get on to your grandfather, which I found absolutely fascinating, why is it that going out and handling the soil does take you away from things? I mean, if if, um, I get up first thing in the morning and pop out to open the polytunnel to let in a bit of cool air... If I'm not careful, I'm there till lunchtime and the time has just evaporated. And after a really tough day, if I've been to meetings in London and things, if you get out into the garden, you're as if you're in another world.
1: I think that's exactly right. I think it is about entering another world. It's certainly how I feel. And like you, I can find I pop out just to do, maybe to pick something that I want. And I'm still out there a couple of hours later. What a lot of people talk about is feeling a sense of losing themselves in the garden. And I think, you know, what, one of the things that happens is that it's an experience that we can very easily get immersed in, in quite a sort of what what we would call now a sort of mindful way, you know, in that sense of being very much in the present moment. And, and also caught up in, in a very... I think gentle form of, of, of a relationship that's based on nurture and care. And one of the things I I wanted to communicate in the book was the importance of that for our mental health, because actually the way that the, the brain is configured in terms of, of, of caring, uh, is that, is that it's associated with release of endorphins, for example. Are natural opioids, so they have a calming, sort of pleasurable, anti-stress effect on us. I mean, I mean, I, it's hard to, it's really hard to put it in a nutshell, Peter, because, you know, there are there are there are so many different levels on which gardening helps people. You know, right from the sort of very well-proven effects of green green nature on improving blood pressure and, and reducing heart rate and actually decreasing levels of the stress
0: hormone cortisol. I've worked a little bit with um, one of the charities called Garden Leave. Ex-soldiers have uh, had real stress problems. If we can get them into a wall garden where they have some protection to their backs and in with colleagues who've experienced similar difficulties, the recovery seems to be quite quick I mean, is it a recovery or is it just a temporary improvement?
1: Well, I think you can't generalise about that. I think, as with all things, you need to have long enough of that therapeutic experience for it to become really embedded in someone's sort of, you know, recovery, if you like. But, you know, what you've touched on is is a very important element of the the therapeutics of gardens, which is... um, The the feeling of safety in that environment, the particular quality that many gardens have and walled gardens have par excellence, is a feeling of being enclosed. As you say, not having to watch your back, but equally not feeling trapped or claustrophobic. You know, gardens have a lovely quality of openness and enclosure. And that's really the starting point for someone recovering from post-traumatic stress, for example.
0: Well, now we have to get on to Ted May. <laughs> how can we best hear that story from you, Sue? Can we hear it almost from the beginning?
1: Yes. I mean, I, I think when I, when I started working on this book, I realised that I was drawing on that memory. And I went to my mother, who is, she's now 93, and asked her to tell me more, tell me as much as she could remember. What I'd grown up hearing was that how... He had been captured as a very young man in Turkey uh, in the spring of 1915. He was a wireless operator on a submarine, on the E-15 submarine, and that he'd he'd really endured the most appalling captivity. Um, And and I later found that actually he was very lucky to survive. Something like 70% of the prisoners of war in Turkey didn't make it home. But when he did come home, which he did eventually... After the end of the war, my grandmother was waiting for him and um, she nursed him. And, and you know, he built his strength up a bit, but, but what really ch- changed his life was getting the opportunity in 1920 to sign up for a, a year-long course of horticultural rehabilitation. And nobody at that point in the family knew where that had happened. And, and you know, Ted had died when I was 12. So he lived... Ted lived, you know following his experiences he lived a very healthy life and and certainly didn't wear his traumas on his sleeve and 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 loved his garden he had a small holding and um so so you know i remember his garden very vividly uh as a child one of the things i wanted to do uh in researching the book was to try and find out where where he'd had that experience and um and I did, I did find it. And it's a it's a it's a large house that was demolished, I think probably about fifty or sixty years ago. Um but from the sales particulars uh I could see uh that it had a very extensive walled garden and and a remarkable number of glass houses, something like ten glass houses, and some of them were heated. And and that for me made sense of of Ted's love of his own greenhouse and and growing orchids that was his other passion apart from his veg growing was was his orchids so so the book for me was was a, was a journey and i often felt um i felt sort of you know the sadness of of the fact that he he was no longer there that i could ask him uh what what had happened but at the same time i wanted to honor his experience
0: well you certainly do that uh, and it's a fascinating story, but your researches go much deeper than that. You go right back in history to uh, examine and understand how tending things and gardening have improved people's uh, mental state.
1: Yes, I think that was something that I also wanted to communicate, Peter, because you know there's there's been such a a, a growth of interest in um contemporary research and science into the benefits of nature it's very easy to sort of to focus mainly on that and, and and i do to some extent focus on that but but actually these truths you know these great truths have been known for a very long time and actually one of the things i also wanted to explore was the very origins of cultivation because it didn't seem to make sense to me that that sort of that gardening if you like came after farming um which is sort of some, somewhat of the received wisdom. And what I discovered in researching archaeology and, and anthropology was that there's a huge overlap. And there's now increasingly sort of acknowledged to be a sort of what's one researcher called a vast middle ground between, between hunter-gatherer lifestyles and foraging and so on, and, and cultivation. And that there's quite a lot of evidence that in the, in the late Paleolithic, people were living quite mixed lifestyles in certain parts of the world. and and also that their cultivation was not for staple foods. They were growing life-enhancing herbs, maybe uh, culturally important foods, dyes, medicines, um, all sorts of things, but it wasn't about survival. And I think that's very important because gardening I think is fundamentally about life enhancement in various
0: ways. I was certainly interested to hear that the apple, as we understand it, came via the Romans with cyanwood just stuck into an apple fruit to keep it fresh. Uh, um, You know, so some of our gardening skills certainly go back.
1: Yeah, and you know, also quite possibly, certainly the ethnographic evidence suggests was was also bound up with the practice of ritual and very early religions. That gardens were were sacred spaces from from very early on.
0: Yes, m- amazing, uh, fascinating history for gardening yeah, and 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 for gardeners. But where are we going now in the future? Do you think, uh, Sue? I think that last point
1: about religion and the origins of, of religion in relation to the garden is still very very relevant because, you know, for all the all, the, let's say the anti stress effects. I was I was describing earlier that we can benefit from there's also a level on which gardening helps people um, you know for some of them they, they would acknowledge it as a, as a spiritual level for others it's it's about a sense of meaning in life you know I think there's there's a lot of existential meaning to be found in gardening because what we do when we garden is we're, we you know we, we get our hands in the soil we connect with the source of life we work, with plants through the whole cycle of life, um, and and that's you know this it is fundamentally about the origins of life, and and I think for many people and some of them feature in the books that you know, people that I interviewed, um, you know when it comes to recovering from a major bereavement um, or other forms of loss or, or a trauma, that sense of, of nature's working with nature's powers of renewal, but at the same time having to confront the inevitability of, of death and decay, if you like. That, that combination is, is very potent in terms of what it can offer people you may feel you know, that there isn't a future anymore, for example.
0: Yes, you because know, um, I worry that gardens in suburban sense are getting smaller and too many people are hard landscaping what little area they have. We have to turn that around, don't we?
1: I think we do, and I, I, there's a very shocking statistic at, at the end of my book about that, but also some other hopeful uh, findings about how much urban and suburban gardens really can contribute to uh, increasing biodiversity and given the, the crisis that we're facing I think for me that's one of the things I really hope that gardeners really do begin to take on board is that actually planting for the pollinators and, and other insects and, and wildlife in the garden can be a significant contribution particularly as our country sizes are becoming more and
0: more depleted. Well, now, so uh, can we underline the title of the book and where people can get it?
1: Um, well, it's just come out in paperback. It's on Kindle, and it's also an audio book read by me, which I managed to record just before the beginning of the pandemic. So it's available in all those different forms and from all major booksellers. It's al- always good to encourage people to use their local their local bookshop and most of them should be stocking it and if not please order it through them
0: (laughs) so it's an absolute joy to uh, chat to you today and again i congratulate you on the book Uh, it's going to stay on my bookshelf and be referred to repeatedly thank you
1: oh thank you peter it's really lovely to hear that
0: They say deaths come in threes and uh, I have received. Sad news of uh, three departures this week. Captain David Barnes, who has died aged 91 or almost 91, uh, he'd left the army in 1958 and married a Julie Pinkney, who was one of the crisps. In John Waterer and Son and Crisp, they had the uh, famous Surrey nurseries and, of course, the Floral Mile along the A4 at Twyford, built some enormous uh, exhibits at Chelsea Flower Show with rhododendrons and azaleas, grown at uh, Bagshot and, of course, in those very early days, shipped into London by train and then by horse and car onto site. They certainly built some uh, really magnificent stands. Under Captain Barnes' experience, Water's expanded into Dobbies of Edinburgh. They bought uh, Dobbies in nineteen sixty nine, and when uh, he moved up there onto that centre, they developed what was the second largest chain of garden centres. His son James followed, and then. Uh, with a management buyout, eventually sold to Tesco in 2008. So uh, Captain David Barnes really did uh, love his trees, shrubs, all of the hardy nursery stock and was uh, quite a character in the horticultural industry. From a different uh, country, Renata Canali. he came from Italy in 1962 and has a Recently died, aged 79. When he came first of all, he went to a nursery called Stuart Lowe in the Lee Valley and progressed there to become sales director. And that was a really big nursery growing a tremendous lot of houseplants when houseplants were unbelievably popular. He had the vision to start a specimen tree and shrub nursery and so in 1991 left Stuart Lowes and set up Europlants in partnership with a really big Italian hardy nursery stock nursery, uh, Venucci Pianti in Pistoa, and for 30 years uh, built up a really big business in specimen trees and shrubs. In fact one uh, wondered at times what the big flower shows like uh, Chelsea and Hampton Court would have been like without Renata's uh, specimen uh, plants uh, populating a lot of those show gardens. Renata was a great character, tremendous supporter of the horticultural industry and his open days, two open days every spring when the nursery was chock full of uh, really beautiful trees and shrubs He was very generous with his Italian hospitality. Uh, We all had a really good lunch there, I'll tell you. There was some excitement. Always a big uh, auction uh, and a lot of money raised for charity, including the Green Fingers charity. And he attracted customers from across the country. I will miss him tremendously. Yet Whenever I called, always time to speak and always a smile from Renata. And the third, John Burroughs, really an amazing fellow in terms of contacts throughout the seed trade. You know, he worked in uh, his early days with a number of the big seed companies, Hearst, Sharps, Thompson and Morgan, and then set off on his own and had contacts really throughout um, the seed trade world. Somehow he used to find the smaller company breeders and introduced a, lots of novelty vegetables i mean this year for example we have the bush tomato sun gold super sweet which was one of john's findings it uh, will be a great memoriam to him i think that uh, cultivar is going to be here for a good few years it's by far the best bush kind very vigorous needs a large pot or container And one good plant, well-grown, will have enough fruit, cherry size and delicious flavour, sweet and flavoursome, enough for a whole family. But it was uh, all kinds of veg, shallots, garden peas, all the salad leaves and flowers. He was um, pretty good on sunflowers uh, and introduced some really good short varieties. I don't believe that his knowledge, experience and enthusiasm for the sea trade will be matched. John, I'll miss you too. Great gaps now amongst uh, my horticultural friends. My tailpiece, a quote from Francis Bacon. Nothing is more pleasant to the eye than green grass kept finely shorn. I could not agree more, uh, but my lawn now needs a mowing after repeated showers it's been impossible to cut, and it's getting a bit too long. But with a bit of luck, this bank holiday week and some nice, warm, dry weather, our uh, turf will be back to uh, looking more pleasant to the eye. Hope to be back with you next week.. Our thanks for this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants Limited, Pershaw, Worcestershire. To my producer, Rich Jarman, and of course to you for listening.